grateful for the opportunity to be here. Uh, uh, my name is Stephen Harris, as was already shared. Uh, gentlemen are in the aisles right now passing out Bibles. So before we get started, if you do not have a Bible today, just raise your hand and uh, they will be delighted to give you a copy of God's Word. Amen. And if you actually don't own one, I think you can take that home. We're still letting people take them home. You, you can take that home um, if you don't have a copy that is yours. Um, yes, we're going to be in the book of Galatians today. We're going to be in the book of Galatians Oh, somebody needs to turn me up. I'm sorry. <clears throat> oh, we got, there we go. Is that, that, that better? Okay. Amen. Amen. Um, we're going to be in Galatians, as I said. Um, as you all are turning there, um, uh, uh, Dennis had mentioned this, and I don't know, I was meditating or something because I, I just didn't, wasn't thinking, but um, want to, uh, just a, a homiletical habit that I have to recognize my bride and my boys who are over there in the back. Bride is Sonny Harris, way back there in the back corner. Um, you can go ahead and praise God for my bride, that's fine. Um, amen. We celebrated 11 years on this past Friday. I was uh, upgraded 11 years ago, as the prophetess Beyonce would have us to know. Amen. Galatians, the sixth chapter. And we're going to be focusing on the first two verses of Galatians chapter six. And as you are arriving there, mind please stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, we're going to be focusing on the first two verses, but I am going to read for our hearing, beginning at the 25th verse of the fifth chapter and proceeding through chapter six, verse five. So our focus verses is verses one and two of the sixth chapter. But as we're standing, I will begin our reading at the fifth chapter, uh, beginning at the 25th fifth verse, and I'll read through chapter six, verse five. You have it, say amen. You need a minute, say wait a minute. Galatians chapter five, beginning at the 25th verse. Scripture reads, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Such is the reading of the word of God. You may be seated. Father, we pray that you would meet us here uh, in your word, that by the power of your spirit, you would help us to understand and that you would apply 
uh, that we might give you glory in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing in our series uh, that is oriented around the thematic goal of being the church. Uh, being the church. And today's topic, we're going to think thinking about together what it means to bear one another's burdens. Uh, so this is a subset, if you will, of the Being the Church series, and we're looking at, or uh, have been for the past few weeks, these passages that are known as the one another passages, these, these passages that speak to uh, what are the characteristics of the people of God together that we ought to engage with one another in a particular kind of way. Uh, and so the passage that we're looking at this morning is talking about the theme of bearing one another's burdens or being a burden-bearing body. So I want to think about it. One of my favorite stories in Greek mythology is a story about a battle between two generations of gods. Uh, there's an older generation and there's a younger generation of gods and they are battling for ownership, if you will, or rulership of the universe. And these generations of gods are battling for 10 years and at the end of the 10-year battle, uh, the younger generation, uh, those are the Olympians, and their leader, Zeus, are, are, are the ones who claim victory. At the end of this 10-year battle, uh, Zeus, uh, 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 because they are the winners, he, he then punishes uh, one of the individuals from the older generation. The older generation was known as the Titans. Uh, he punishes uh, one of the Titans. His name was Atlas. And the punishment that he gives to Atlas, who is a titan, who is of the older generation, they lost the war, is that Atlas has to hold up, as it were, the celestial bodies on his back. He has to literally hold up uh, the, the heavens, if you will. And out of that, that mythology produced the image, you probably have seen it, of the individual who's holding the globe on his back. And that's a, an interpretation. He's really holding the heavens on his back, but the individual who's holding uh, the globe, the world on his back, and out of that is produced the kind of axiom that we often hear today, that an individual who is under various amounts of burden and pressure, they are weighing the world on their shoulders, right? I have all these issues and burdens going on. It's like I'm holding the world on my shoulders. What's fascinating about that story to me is that even in Greek mythology, you have this conception of what it means to, to bear a burden, what it means to have to deal with issues in life and what it means to be weighed down by those burdens and what it means to want to seek relief. Now, we know as Christians, the text doesn't uh, shy away from this. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says in no uncertain terms that in this life you will have tribulation. That's a promise. It's not a promise. We're like, we don't claim that promise. Like, Give me another tribulation. No, we don't claim that promise. But in this life, he says you will have tribulation. And it, and it all makes sense. I mean, he goes into this discourse in another place where he talks about a student not being above his master. He talks about a follower not being above his or her leader, that the way in which they treated the master will be indicative of the way that the student will be treated. That if Jesus went through certain things, and he's Jesus, then I would expect that I will be going through certain things as well. These tribulations, these issues of life, they're common things. And, and, uh, and life gets hard. 
You know, we talk about being the church and what, what the characteristic of the church ought look like, and we're getting a lot of this from Paul. Uh, he's helping us put this ecclesiology together, the, the, the habits, if you will, of the local church. One of the things that this uh, requires is that we have the ability to come in those doors and be honest with each other. How's your week been? Terrible? That, 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 that I, I'll be able to come here and say, you know what, I, I'm actually a little tired. I'm, I'm, I'm pressing my way, though. Because if we're going to be the church and if we're going to inhabit all of these things that these one another passages call us to do, there has to be an honesty with one another so that when we come in here, we can actually, by God's grace and by his spirit, evidence these things. This book... Uh, uh, this, this letter that, that Paul writes to churches uh, in Galatia, uh, modern-day Turkey, um, uh, he, he, he is concerned about something. And, and, and as with any passage, this is a topical series, and so we're looking at throughout the Bible uh, under a particular topic, and so we're looking for passages that accord with the topic that we're looking at. Uh, but with any even topical address, we want to make sure that we consider the ways in which the text walks up to its purpose given what we're looking at. So we're looking at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, but it's so important. You know how I am. That we understand Paul's entire point of writing this letter. And, and as a matter of fact, uh, the, the first point that I'm going to make is tied to the rest of his message in the rest of this letter. Paul begins with a sense of urgency in the book of Galatians. Paul is agitated about something. When you look at the, the greeting that Paul gives, it's, 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 it's consistent in some ways, but it's inconsistent in other ways with greetings that Paul gives elsewhere. You know, Paul opens up and he likes to say, you know, I, I thank the Lord, my God, for you. And he gives them a commendation. And he talks about how he's heard of their faith and how he's heard of their love. He don't do nothing that with this book. He ain't got nothing nice to say to open it up about them. So in the first chapter, Paul is concerned about not only defending his apostleship, because that's a part of the problem going on there at that church or at that area of local churches, about defending his apostleship. But, but, but before that, he, he's concerned about defending the message above the messenger. Paul is concerned that, that the churches of Galatia have actually traded in on uh, the bedrock of the Christian faith, with its ju which is justification by faith, and now they're turning to consider what it might mean to be justified by works. And Pastor Tia uh, uh, went by this a few weeks ago, but, but, but Paul, Paul is concerned because these individuals have, have turned away from the gospel that he has preached to them, and he wants them to understand the gravity, the importance of making sure that these first order things are correct. So Paul defends the message, and he says that the message is so important that it ought be above the messenger. That if even an angel were to come and tell you something different than the gospel that you first heard, you need to reject the angel. I don't care if he's shining and glowing and pretty, he wrong. So Paul says we got to get this thing back on track, that we got to understand that this is not and has never been about being justified by works. It's about being justified by faith. So by the time he gets to chapter 2, he has no qualms to give. That means he doesn't have any problem. No qualms left to give with confronting Peter to his face. 
Because Peter has become a part of the problem because Peter is living hypocritically. Peter, as one who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter who understands the importance of what it means to be justified by faith, Peter is actually living like the works of the law have importance, salvific importance. And Paul says he confronts Peter to his face in front of everybody. He don't pull him to the side. He don't send him an email. He said, Peter, 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 come on up here, Peter. And this is Peter, not Pete. This is the apostle Peter. And he confronts Peter to his face and he tells them that your behavior is not in keeping in step with the truth of the gospel. He says, you're acting like, you're acting like being obedient to the law uh, uh, means something. You are changing your eating habits depending on who's around you because you don't want people to have a particular uh, account of you. And he says, that is causing other people to stumble. Now, Paul is, is about to get into an argument, and he understands that if he's going to combat these Judaizers, these individuals who are uh, proponents of being justified by works, in particular circumcision, he has to prove his argument biblically. So in the third chapter, he, he, he reminds us that, that, that there was a promise given to the patriarch Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And Paul's argument is this. In Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham that through him, all the nations are going to be blessed. And Paul wants the reader to understand, he wants you and I to understand, that this blessing is ultimately tied to the coming of Christ. And this blessing that we receive is apart from obedience to the law, but it is appropriated, it is received by faith. So Paul makes the argument in chapter 3, uh, how can the law uh, that, that came, that, 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 that the advent of the law was 470 years after the promise of Abraham, how can we now enter into this thing that we know we receive by faith through works of the law? Paul says that doesn't make any sense. That's not even in order. And so then he, he, he raises the question, what is the purpose of the law? At the end of chapter 3, he talks about the law being a pedagogue, a tutor. That what the law ultimately teaches you and I is that we are, we are locked up in sin. We are constrained. There is no way out of it. Not because the law is wrong, not because the law is bad, but because there's something wrong with us. So Paul says that law uh, taught us like a tutor. It, it brought us into a classroom and it set us down in a chair and it told us that we were whack. That when any individual assesses his or her life according to the holy standards of God's law, they ought be able to leave with one and only one conclusion. I'm jacked up. So Paul says the law taught us that. It, 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 it coached us. It trained us. It held us up until the coming of Christ, who was our only way out. That, that the whole point of the tension, even of the Old Testament and, and the cliffhanger that we are awaiting this great and glorious day of the Lord, we are awaiting this salvation, is that we're waiting for something, someone to come and rescue us from the demands of the law because we cannot fulfill them. In chapter 4, Paul goes on in his argument and he gives this analogy uh, and he reaches again back to the book of Genesis and he talks about uh, two women that we see in Genesis, one named Sarah and one named Hagar. And he says these two women are, are, are allegories of sort, meaning that, that we can think of them as representing the two different roles that he's arguing. One being justification by works, the other being justification by faith. He says these, we can think of these women allegorically because in the narrative of the Old Testament, uh, Sarah was free. 
and Hagar was a slave. And he wants to convince the reader and he wants to convince you and I that we are, we are children of, of, of the free woman. We are children of, of the promise. We're not children of the slave because the children of the slave is going to ultimately be tied to the covenant at Sinai, which is the law. He says, you don't want to be tied to that covenant. He says, we are children uh, 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 of the free woman. We are like Isaac were. We are children of the promise. And so if I'm going to make sure that I'm keeping in line with what God intended, I got to make sure that I'm thinking rightly about what my works can accord me, which is nothing. So by the time he gets to chapter five, he's finally saying, look, justification by faith has always been the way to go. Don't pursue circumcision. Why would you go back and try to perfect in the flesh what you've begun in the spirit? He says, we have been justified by faith. You are free. There's a freedom to be justified by faith and having the spirit at work in you that you are no longer bound and contained, but you are free because the spirit actually releases you uh, from the power of sin. It gives you victory because you are now tapped into the victory that Christ purchased on your behalf. But as he does elsewhere, there's always a problem with freedom for the Christian. Because once somebody lets somebody free that's been locked up, it's like, you know, people always tell a story of, you know, maybe kids who maybe had the lockdown on them a little too much before they went off to college. And then they get to that first, that first semester and, and, and they go to college away from home and, and they don't know how to act. That was me, by the way. They don't know how to act. I wasn't doing homework my first semester. I was just saying, who's who gonna make me do my homework? Out all late, eating cheeseburgers. Paul says there's a problem with freedom because if I, if I, don't, if I don't tell you how to, how, to, how, to, how to guide your freedom, if I don't tell you the intention of your freedom, then you're going to use that freedom. That freedom is going to turn into lasciviousness or licentiousness, meaning you're not going to have any restraint. You're going to feel the freedom and you're going to feel the temptation to abuse that freedom. Because if, if you feel that there is a surge of grace coming your way, the, 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 the question might enter your mind, then why don't I pursue sin more so that I can get more grace? So Paul says we were, not, we were not made free so that we could pursue our own lust, but we were made free so that we could serve one another. So here's the first point, and I always, I always want to make this point when we're talking about things that we might call practical, because this is a practical sermon series. Well, we often think that practicality uh, is, 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 is what you pursue when you're moving away from spirituality. I, uh, when I was at ministry, I used to sit down with a lot of people, and they used to just want practical advice. You know, Stephen, I know you all deep and everything, but I just want to spend the next 15 minutes talking about practical things. And so I would listen and hear them, and then I would go on with my plan of talking about prayer and talking about the gospel and talking about med- They're like, Stephen, that, I understand that, but that doesn't help me. I just want practical advice. I'm saying, I'm trying to help you. Let's talk more about your prayer life, how you're reading the word. Because they, in their minds, to be practical is to leave that stuff behind. But I want to suggest to you that, that spirituality empowers practicality. That you and I as a congregation cannot live out the practical demands of the faith unless we have been positioned and situated rightly with regard to God, that's spirituality. And so before we even move to chapter 6, we got to understand what Paul is doing at the end of chapter 5 because Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that when the Spirit is at work in your life, it looks a particular kind of way. 
That an individual who is not walking in the flesh but walking in the spirit, that life looks a kind of way. Because Ephesians tells us that, that, that we've been given the down payment of the Holy Spirit. That, 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 that when we were saved and, and united to Christ, that, that work was, was actualized by the work of the Spirit. The Spirit brought us in union with Christ, and then he indwelled us so that we could live out faith. That we were positionally justified when we believed, but then the Spirit indwells us so that we can be sanctified and live what we are. Because we don't, we don't work our way into being, but we work out of what we have made, been made or what we have become because of God. And Paul says, I, I want you to understand this very clear. So he gives a list. And lists, lists are dangerous. Because if you like me, you're just going through that list and hoping that you don't see yourself in the wrong list. Okay, I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't do that. I did that last week, but that's okay. I don't do that. I don't do that. But what Paul wants us to understand is that, 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 that there's a kind of life that is lived and there's a kind of image that that life portrays when that life is lived according to the flesh. In other words, Paul's basically saying unbelievers live a, a kind of way. Christians don't live like that. Individuals who are walking in the spirit, that there is a recognizable fruit that is produced when the Holy Spirit comes in contact with the human spirit. Just like you, 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 you will not come up with the baby unless two people come together. My son uh, Jude has been asking me where babies come from, and, and I've been acting like I ain't hear him. <laughs> but, 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 but there is no way you come up with an offspring without two people coming together. And Paul is saying that, 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 that when the Holy Spirit enters the life of an individual, the fruit or the offspring of that union looks a particular kind of way. So I don't want you to be self-deceived and act like your life is producing the baby or the seed of faith when you obviously ain't had no baby. Uh, uh, this was a long time ago, um, back when I was in Kentucky. Um, my wife, my bride was working downtown at the law firm, and I was working at the church. And uh, one day she called me, and she said, uh, Stephen, um, are, you, are you downtown? I forget the name, number of the street. She's like, are you downtown on 4th Street? Um, and I was like, no, nah, babe, I'm, I'm at work. Um, like, I'm really at work. I'm not lying. She's like, are you downtown on 4th Street? She was like, no, nah, babe, I'm at, I'm at work. She's like, oh, okay. I, I thought I saw somebody from my window that looked like you, she said, but I knew it wasn't you because they didn't have your walk. So at this point, I'm intrigued. I'm like, I didn't even know I had a walk. I'm like, is it like a Denzel type walk? She was like, no, I wouldn't say that. They just weren't walking like you. She's like, I knew it wasn't you, but I just wanted to make sure but, uh, because they weren't walking like you walked. And so I looked this thing up when I was preparing for this uh, because the Denzel walk, if y'all don't know, Denzel Washington has a walk. Look at the ladies like, yes, he does. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. He, he, he has a walk. It, it's, it, it's just the Denzel glide. I don't know. It's just what it is. 
And but what's interesting is uh, one time he was on CBS this morning and Gail King asked him about his walk. She said, you know, Denzel, I don't know if you know this, but you got to walk. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. And so she was like, you got to walk. And he said, uh, what people don't know is that the way I walk uh, emerges from me trying to walk like somebody else when I was younger. He says there's this individual that he grew up with and him and his friends would try to imitate this walk that this person has. And in his imitation of this person's walk, it eventuated in Denzel Washington having this distinct walk. So I was like, oh, okay, so maybe I might be able to, to get, get in on that. I can try my Denzel walk too. But, <laughs> but, but it, it's fascinating because, because you can tell just by looking at the walk if it's them or not. So look at, look at chapter 5 of Galatians. I, I, I just want to read this. I'm not even going to interpret it. I'm just going to read it for our hearing before we move on to 6. Look at chapter 5, uh, uh, verse, begin at verse 18. The text says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit what does he say here? Is love. You see that fruit is in the singular. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So before Paul goes into his exhortation about habits, he wants to make sure that we understand that this is a conversation about spirituality. This is not simply a conversation about practical habits. This is a conversation about spirituality. And Paul wants us to know that there's a clear distinction between what it looks like when one is walking according to the flesh and when one is walking according to the spirit. And so he ends this transition into chapter six. It's not by happenstance that he talks the way he talks, where he says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Provocation and envy are both, according to this passage, species of pride. And pride, or the word that he uses there, uh, vainglory, is in the King James probably says, uh, 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 overestimation uh, and overconsideration and concern about one's own interests. Paul says that before I go into what I'm about to go into, I need you to understand that you are not going to be able to do this right if you are only concerned about yourself. And he says, concern about self produces, it, it looks, it evidences in a, in a couple of ways. You are either just very annoying, according to the text. Look, look at what it says. You, you, conceit produces a provocation of others or an envy of another. 
You can't care about somebody if you're jealous of them. Let me amend that. You don't care about somebody if you're jealous of them. And, 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 and th- th- this isn't, you know, the th- envy and jealousy are one of those things that just festers on the inside. That, 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 that it's, it's not obvious uh, uh, in, a, in a very kind of evident kind of way, but it festers on the inside, this, this over-concern and consideration for oneself. And so when somebody else seems to be uh, uh, producing or when somebody else seems to be gaining or when somebody else seems to be uh, uh, winning, uh, it produces something on the inside of a person who's filled with pride and it, it, it turns into envy because not only are you jealous of what has taken place, you are now uh, in your heart wishing ill on that person. And, and, and Paul, Paul wants us to know finally at this point in the book that that, that, that kind of spirit, that that kind of uh, disposition, that doesn't work in a community. Or that, that kind of spirit, that kind of disposition is what tears communities apart. Or that kind of spirit and that kind of disposition is what, what, what ends up in communities where we're, we're all together, but we ain't really like together together. It's like, that, that's, that's, that's my church, but you know, you know how they can be. Because if, if there is no, no trust that's undergirded by love, and we're going to get into all this, then, then Paul says, you're not going to have a desire to do what I'm about to ask you to do. Paul says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So, so, so in the, in the ideal community, uh, the ideal religious community, uh, the ideal Christian community, Christians understand that spirituality uh, empowers these things that are practical, that, that it informs it and it empowers it, that if I'm not doing this by the work of the Spirit, it's not going to get done. But when you have a spirit-informed and empowered community, and when believers are walking according to the spirit and not according to the flesh, that in community, there are certain kinds of habits that are produced. Certain kinds of questions that the spirit-filled believer will be quick to ask when in a community. The first one, according to this passage, is, how can I restore? The Christian who's living in community with other Christians, who's a part of a local church, is always seeking ways to to restore. How, how, How can I restore? How can I bring restoration? Now, the idea here uh, uh, with, with, with verse one is not merely someone who has been caught as in detected, because, you know, you read that anyone who's caught is like, OK, well, we caught you. So, I, duh, you got to be restored. But no, the, the, the image here is one who, was, who, who is caught up, one who is almost caught by surprise, one who is trying to run well, trying to be obedient. But just like all of us are, are tempted with sin and an individual falls into sin, the image here is one that is, is caught up and tripped up and another believer witnesses, he says that the individuals who are spiritual, which should be all of us, Paul isn't making an argument for the super saints to now get involved. So he's like, okay, I know, I know a lot of y'all living in the flesh, y'all don't move. I need to talk to the other people. <laughs> 
Because this is the kind of ethic that I think sometimes we submit ourselves to. That in, in, in the community, there are Christians, and then there are like the real Christians. And I used to be guilty of this, uh, and, I, and I used to exploit that. Because when I, when I was in pastoral ministry, and there was something going on, I, I, I'd had my list. You know, I need you to come over here and pray. Not, not you, you to pray. You come over here and pray. Because you actually pray at home. You. No, no, Paul isn't saying that among the believers, there are believers who are fleshly, but then there are a few who might be spiritual. Y'all need to come and help this brother or sister get up. No, no, no. Paul says this is the aspirational ethic that ought be for everybody. All of us, when we were saved, became indwelt by the Spirit and are called to live according to the Spirit. We all should be spiritual. So he's not saying you in there who are spiritual, like the few of y'all, but he's saying you who are spiritual. He's reminding us who we are. Or to put it another way, that you is plural, not singular. You who are spiritual should restore him, watch this, in a spirit of gentleness. That's the second time he used the word gentleness. Where is it? Where is it? Where else is it? It's, a, it's an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says, okay, when we, when we have a brother or sister who has is, who is fallen into sin, and this, this accords with uh, uh, Matthew uh, chapter 16 through chapter 18. We don't have time to go there, but just read chapter 18. This is in line with that. But Paul says, when we have someone who has fallen, uh, uh, there ought be a way that you approach individuals. He says, in a, in a spirit of, of gentleness, that's meekness, that's, that's, that's that you're approaching them, uh, uh, it's serious, but you're not, you're not trying to injure them, you're actually trying to help them. That, 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 I, that I have such a, 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 an approach that, that I, I want to be truthful, but I don't want to be truthful without grace. Because if I'm only concerned about being a dispenser of truth without grace, I'm going to injure And then you have those apologetics where, well, you know, you hear about a situation. Well, what'd you do? What happened? I just told him the truth. It's like, oh, you did that. Okay, we'll fix that. You, you have a seat. No, no, no. It's, 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 not, it's not being truthful without grace. This leads to harm and not healing. And, and it's not grace without truth. You see how you can fall off on, on either side? So I don't want to injure, so I, I want to make sure that my truthfulness is seasoned with grace, but I, but I also want to make sure that I'm not leaving out the fact that, that we've been called to a standard, that we're just not in here doing what we want to do. You know, I can't do what I want to do, so you can't do what you want to do. That there, there is a standard here, so I want to make sure that my grace is also seasoned and undergirded and directed by truth. You know what grace without truth leads to? Licentiousness. It's the, same, it's the same error that Paul is always trying to close the back door on. Same door in Romans 6. Now, now Paul doesn't leave us without, without any mechanism of, 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 of kicking in this, this meekness. 
Paul says, here's what should be the, 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 the kickstarter of this meekness in you. You ought to be thinking about something. And Paul says, what tempers the tone of how you address someone who has fallen in sin is you considering your own self. Paul says that, that, that ought smooth out those edges as you're walking over. That as you are considering your approach, you're also reminded of the fact that you yourself are a grace case. Okay, 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 okay. Y'all, y'all. We can't come up in, no, we, I guess we can, but we shouldn't come up, I almost got the wrong tone with y'all. We shouldn't come up in here acting like the cross of Jesus Christ was something that we needed sometime in the past. But after we use it to do what we needed it to do, once we get in here, we really don't need it anymore. No, the cross is something that we're always sitting at the feet of because we're always in need to be reminded of what that work not only has done, but what it is doing. Like what it's doing right now. What it did and what it's doing and what it's gonna do. So Paul says, when, when you're seeking to, 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 to restore someone, when you're seeking to, to pick someone up, he says, don't think that you are above falling yourself. He says, don't, 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 don't be self-deceived into thinking that, you know, you, you know, some things happen, some things used to happen, and folks would always ask me, can you believe that? And, 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 and at some point, I got to say, well, I, it don't matter what I believe, it happened. There it is right there. Well, so what, what do you think about that? I mean, what, 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 what is your response? You know what I start telling folks? Jesus, keep me near the cross is my response. Well, yeah, 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 I know that, but what are we going to do? I'm going to pray for that individual and for myself. I, I, I was always quick to turn that reflection on me because the, the, the longer you let it stay on the other person, you begin to think things about yourself that are not true. It's just not. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse or many or an overabundance and an unnecessary abundance are the kisses of an enemy. That I, in the community of faith, we, we, we all want and welcome that kind of gentle, loving correction. Now, it takes, it takes humility all around. And, and atmosphere, this, this ethic that Paul is talking about, it takes time for the Spirit to produce this in a, in a group of people. That as, as we spend time one with the other and as we, we relate over what the gospel has done and is doing, as we get comfortable and as we trust, then the Spirit produces this relationship where, where it is now natural for me to, 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 to tell you about things that I see in you and vice versa. That, 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 that the relationship actually proves itself to be what Paul is calling it to be when you don't just let me walk around looking any kind of way. I mean, tell me that, you know, 
tell me that my zipper is down. I know it's uncomfortable, but tell me. I've seen some folks like go to a social function with somebody and, and like come and tell me, okay, Dennis's zipper is down and what we gonna do? I'm like, go tell him. Like, what you? <laughs> don't, have out, don't have him out here looking any kind of way. And then after it's over, you know, man, I was gonna tell you while you were up speaking that you were just kind of out. No, no, no. Christians, again, we, 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 we seek to be restorative. We're always looking for ways to help people follow Jesus better as I seek to follow him better. And what it requires, again, is me not being so proud to act like I'm above the possibility of having issues. I, I probably said it here before, but I, I, these, these kinds of passages remind me of the story when I, I had my first uh, adult physical at the doctor. And if I've said this, I'm sorry, it's just, it's just what comes to my mind. Um, an adult physical, you know, when you're a child and you go to the doctor for a physical, they look in the ears, they tap your knees, they check you, you're pretty much healthy. You know, they don't really do anything. They just want you to pay a couple hundred dollars and leave. But when you're an adult, when you're an adult, you get a real physical. And the adult physical comes with the adult gown. Y'all know what the adult gown is? The adult gown is the gown with the back out. It tells you to strip all the way down and put on this gown that has the back totally out. And your responsibility is to tie the gown in the back. Strings are not aligned, but you have to tie it in the back and you have to tie it around the neck. And once you're done tying, you pull that thing as tight as it can go and you're still wide open. Like, who designed this? <laughs> With the adult physical, you know, this is serious now. You're growing up. You're a big boy. So, you know, so we got to check all the things. We got to make sure everything's working, all the things. And so they put all my stuff on a chart, all the things. And so he needs this test. We need to check this. We need to look at this. We need to reach in here. All the things. They put it on a chart. Wrote it out, put it on a chart. Put the chart on the outside of the door that they told me to wait in. So the chart's just out there. I'm inside with my back out with the door closed. <laughs> so I'm thinking about what's been put on that chart, and I'm thinking I'm sitting here with my back out, and I, I, I'm, literally, this, I'm literally like, I don't want anybody to walk by and see what things I got to get checked on. Like, I don't want anybody to know all this stuff. So I get down off the bed. I grab the gown, close it together. I waddle to the door, grab my chart, close the door, waddle back in, and sit on the table. Anybody going to be looking at my issues? <laughs> 10 minutes go by. 20 minutes go by. 30 minutes go by. 40 minutes go by. Literally 40 minutes go by. So I get down, I waddle back out, and I peep my head out and, and check what the nurse says. She says, oh, we didn't think anybody was in this room. We forgot about you. And here's why she said they forgot. Because the chart on the outside of the door lets the physician know that somebody in the room needs to be seen. She said, when you took your chart, the physician didn't think that anybody was in the room who had need to be checked out. When you and I come in here and we act like we ain't got nothing wrong with us, it signals to the physician that you don't need to be checked on. 
And what happened was my room got passed by because I didn't want any individual to know that I was in a hospital needing to be checked on. You know what the irony is? I'm in a, I'm in a doctor's office. Everybody in the doctor's office coming in to be checked. So how much sense does it make for you and I to come into the hospital of hospitals and act like ain't nothing wrong? Paul says the only way for this thing to work is that we have individuals looking out for one another, but also individuals who are humble enough to receive the correction when the correction needs to come in. This thing works both ways, but it takes humility and honesty. And, and I'm just going to admit to y'all, I'm not all the way there, so don't act like I'm, you know, everybody, I, I, this, I am in progress. Sonny will be the first to tell you, I live inside my head. I'm often wrestling with things that don't nobody know about. And I like to talk about stuff when I feel like I figured it out. Anybody else like that? It's like, Stephen, what's going on? Nothing. Just get back to me in a couple weeks. <laughs> well, Stephen, you look a little tense. I'm good. Almost got it, right? I, I, I like to figure it out or be on my way out of it. Because that, that testimony sounds a lot different when you're on your way out. Then you want to come and get the mic. Well, I was in this situation, but now I'm on my way out. Right? You, 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 that's, you can like glory in that. But when you are like still in it, and the only person who can get glory for fixing it is God and not you, we, we don't like that. Because it, it makes us look weak. And here's the thing, the, t- the text, the Bible says, we only are made strong when we prove that we're okay with being weak. Psalm 141 verse 5 says, let a righteous man strike me. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Not only am I concerned about how can I restore, I'm also concerned about how can I relieve. The Christian in a community asks him or herself, how can I be restorative? But also he or she also asks, how can I uh, relieve? And we see that uh, in, our, in, one of, in our key focus for this sermon. I finally got to the main point, right? Verse 2, uh, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Being in a community with others necessitates caring for the needs of others. We are to help others as they face the difficulty of life. We, we are, to, we are to, to, to help others as they face the difficulties of life. Now, now, Paul is introducing the notion of burdens here, and, and many people think that the burden that he's referencing only has to do with the temptation of sin. I think it includes that, but the burdens also widely include anything in life that we're troubled by. And we, uh, you are a testament to that fact. You and I come in here with uh, uh, economic burdens. We come in here with physical burdens. We come in with emotional burdens. And the text says that we ought to be carrying some of that stuff for people and with people. That we ought to be a a, a burden-bearing body. That we ought to be willing to be uh, inconvenienced for the sake of showing love to somebody in need. Now, ARC, I'm going to be honest with y'all. We've already evidenced uh, that that we have the capacity to do this. 
I mean, I, this, I just want to confess, it, it, it was convicting. When we first joined this church, there were a bunch of emails going around. And I think they still happen. I just haven't seen them lately. But there are a bunch of emails going around, and folks will be like, you know, I need this. And then two minutes later, need met. <laughs> and and, and, and it, was, it was showing to me, even as I was like, oh, man, like they, they really like helping each other. Like, need met, like you saw need met like every 10 minutes. We have, we have demonstrated the capacity to want to be a community that looks out for one another, that cares for one another. And so this particular exhortation to bear one another's burdens, it, it's a call for us to continue to do what we have been doing and to want to increase in that thing. Just as Paul was concerned when he asked us to to help the individual caught in transgression, you do so while keeping a watchful eye on yourself. There is a caution that Paul wants to, us to have as we help bear uh, one another's burdens. And, 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 it, and it's there in the text. It's very clear. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. See, see Paul, is, Paul is very concerned that, 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 that when we are aid, coming to each other's aid, that, 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 that when one believer for a, a, a temporary moment needs to show him or herself strong uh, for the sake of another believer, he wants to make sure that, that, again, false conclusions aren't made about oneself. So this is the same kind of correction that he, he, he gave in the first part. He, he has to rehearse it again so that as you are helping someone, as you are bearing someone's burdens, you don't begin to think something about yourself again. That's not true. Because everybody's going to come to a point where they have a need and a burden that they can't shoulder. That's Everybody. That's everybody. Uh, 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 old people in, 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 in church where I grew up in used to just say, uh, you just live life long enough and, and something will happen that will prove itself too much for you. And, and this text is, is challenging us to, at, at that moment, be able to turn to our community of faith and, and to be able to, to, to seek help for someone to help shoulder the burden that I can no longer carry by myself. And Paul wants to make sure that we understand what's the model for this. He says, you're bearing one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ, he says earlier, is a law of love. And that law of love, as we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago, is demonstrated in the very work that Christ did on the cross for our behalf. He says, you have a model for this. That, 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 that what it looks like to bear a burden is exactly, is precisely what Christ has done for us. That sin burden was, was devastatingly heavy. And Jesus comes and he lives this perfect righteous life and he takes upon himself the full weight of that burden for the sake of his people. He says this is, this is something that we know. This is, this is literally how we fulfill the law of Christ. This is literally how we are obedient to what Christ has commanded us to do. That we are showing love by bearing burdens. But let each one test his own work, verse 4. 
And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Look, Paul says, and, and I love this because look at, look at how the passage ends, for each will have to bear his own load. Paul, Paul does this. He'll often run uh, uh, full force into what seems like a contradiction just so he can make sure that we get the full point. Look, we, we, we're in here bearing each other's burdens, and that's the call of the Christian to do. But Paul wants to make sure that you know that at the end of the day, and this is a future tense verb, that at the end of the day when we come before God, we are all going to have to give an account for ourselves and our own work. Paul says, yeah, it's a part of the Christian communal ethic that we bear each other's burdens, but there's also a sense in which at the end of the day, everyone's going to be responsible for carrying their own load. And I I like that backstop because it, it reminds you and I that as we seek to help each other with the trials and tribulations of life, we are not each other's saviors. That, 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 that I'm seeking to, to grant relief. I'm seeking ways in which I can grant relief. But this relief that I'm granting only has a temporary sense. It's reflected of, of a particular work that Christ has done. But my work that I'm doing for you is not salvific in any way. Or to put it, put it another way, Paul wants to let you know that he knows you can't do everything for everybody. That what Paul is not saying is that it's completely up to you and I to make sure that that other person or to make sure that the individuals of our community make it to where they need to, to make it. Paul, Paul wants you to understand that that ultimately is not, is not us. That we're called to, to shoulder burdens. We're called to help and assist where we can. But ultimately, what I'm going to do with you is the same thing I do with myself. I'm going to commend us to God. Because there, there comes a time when somebody needs something, and, and, and I have to be honest and say, yeah, I, I, I wish I could do that, but I can't do that. And Paul wants to let you and I know that that's not the final word, because even if we can't ultimately do for somebody what they really need, there is somebody else we can appeal to who can provide that, that need. It's, 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 it's not all up to us that everyone uh, has to be responsible for their own load, but he wants to make sure that we understand that we're still called to help where we can. And this testing that he's talking about of your works on that day, it's not a testing that you get to do in comparison to somebody else. Because that, that, kind of, that kind of testing will, will lead you to the wrong conclusion. It's not a comparison uh, with what somebody else has done compared to what you've done. That's not the testing that's going to happen on that day. Paul says this is, this is a kind of testing. That word is, is it's, it's on, an authentic testing. It's an accurate testing. It's a, a true test. And that if there's going to be anything to boast about on that day, it's going to be a testing that has been done that truly proves what is accurate. You're going to be boasting in God about what he has done for you and in you, but it's going to be an accurate boasting. In other words, when we come before him, you know, we're not going to get to act like we're more than what we are. Because he's going to see us exactly, everything's going to be made clear. Paul says when you get to that day, there's not going to be any, any not, not only no temptation, but no ability to self-deceive, no ability to think too highly of yourself, because on that day, it's going to be an accurate testing. I'll, I'll end on this point, and it's a, it's a confessional one. I know what it's like, and some of y'all might be like, you sure do. I know what it's like. Um, 
to have a lot of stuff going on in your own life. And again, my, my temptation is that when I, when, when, when I feel like I have a lot going on, I get really tunnel vision. And, and that, that's just how, it's just a habit that I have that I need to constantly have checked. And, and, I, and, I, and I take on this, this posture, um, or, or put it, let's put it this way, I, I, can, I can come off as not having, not having empathy. And, and I know, I know for a fact that when, when you are actually weighed down by the issues of life, no, no, nothing hurts more than to feel like your community is not empathic towards you. Everybody doesn't have to know what, what's going on, but it, you want to feel like your community cares for you, like actually cares. And so even as I was reading this passage and preparing, it was, it was hitting me uh, uh, because it was telling me that, Stephen, you, you yourself can come off in particular kinds of ways when you feel like you have a justification to not want to be bothered. I'll put it that way. I, I got a... I got a real problem with this spirit of not wanting to be bothered. Sometimes I, I, I evidence it towards my bride and my kids. It's just that I, yeah, it's like, ugh. You know, I'll have, I'll have text messages. Folks will text me, you know, Stephen, how you doing? Just, just, just texting and check up on you. I'll respond back like two weeks later. I'll be like, oh, I'm good, brother. I appreciate it. Thank you. They respond back. What you talking about? I'm like, oh, you texted me and asked me. He was like, that was two weeks ago. And, and, I, and this temptation to not be present with people. And th th this is a temptation that I have. When, when I have a lot going on, you, and, and some people can just read, and, read me and see it. I will be standing in front of you. I'm present, but I'm not present. And in order for this ethic to work, we got to be present with each other. Because I, I, you're not going to feel comfortable requesting of me that I help you share a load and vice versa. The ethic just isn't produced in a people who don't feel like the people in the community care about them. Paul is after something real, genuine, and authentic that is produced when a people are walking in the spirit, are humble and honest. They care for one another. They support one another. They pick each other up when we're falling. They strive together. How can I restore? How can I relieve? One more practical nugget that we could practice. Uh, if you want to practice this today or speaking to myself, if I want to practice this today. We often ask, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, how can I pray for you? I think that's a fine thing to request. But as I was reading this passage, one of the things that that, that, that could project is like, I'm not going to do, like actually do, but I'm willing to pray. Uh, 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 just as equal request that we could ask is, what can I do for you this week? Now, here's the thing. That opens up your week now. See, that's, that's the thing. When you say, like, what can I do for you this week? They're like, oh, well, you know. And you're like, oh, Lord. 
Okay, okay. What you need? What you need? I got, I got Friday open. What you need? But that, in, that, that then invites that, right? And, and, and let, let the Lord give you an opportunity to be a blessing, right? And, and I'm, I'm, I am literally talking to myself. Let the Lord give you an opportunity to be a blessing to somebody. What can I do for you this week? I'm already praying for you, but what can I do for you this week? Well, I need to go to Dulles on Tuesday. Oh, Lord. <laughs> what time you need to go? My flight leaves at 5 a.m., so oh, Lord. Okay, okay. Okay, Jesus. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, I got you. I got you. I got you. Need Matt, need Matt. <laughs> you can't fly to BWI. You got, can't fly to Reagan. <laughs> Let the Lord give you a testimony. Let the Lord give us a testimony for how we can come to each other's aid and prove that we are walking by the Spirit in the community of faith that God wants us to be. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for. We thank you for your word, dear God, that reminds us of how you have made us right with you and your son, how you have singularly, unilaterally initiated the work of salvation in our hearts, that you have united us to your son by the power of the spirit, and you have placed us in community with the body, that as Christ is our head, that we are the members, we have been called uh, out together to literally be the church, the called out assembly. Father, I pray that you would help us as we strive to do this, not in our own flesh, but by your spirit, that we would be a community that is constantly asking ourselves, how can we be restorative one to the other? And how can we bring relief one to the other? Father, knit us together so that that ethic is increasingly realized in this community so that one, we may help each other as we follow Jesus, but then to a, a watching world, the testimony might, might be, look at how they love each other. Father, I pray that you would do this in our own hearts, that you would do this in the hearts of your people. And Father, if there be anyone in here who does not know you, that have, after hearing that there is nothing that we and of ourselves can do to be made right with you, they would look to the cross and see Jesus as their only hope of righteousness. God, I pray that you would do this work in all of our hearts for your glory and for your good. Amen. Amen.